Welcome to the Natural Capital series as part of Fast Sounds, where we are looking at different natural capital assets and their value to Scottish agriculture and the rural economy, including the opportunities and risks for the future. You can listen back to episode one, which we introduced the topic of natural capital, and episode two on Scotland's rainforests. These are available on the FAST website or any podcast streaming service. Remember to like, follow and subscribe to listen to all the episodes in this series. I'm Rachel Smiley, the host of the series. Producer is Ian Boyd, editor Ross McKenzie, executive producer Kerry Hammond, as part of the Farm Advisory Service in association with the Scottish Government. This is our third episode and today we are focusing on the very relevant and important topic of peatlands. We are joined by Dr Emily Taylor, who will be explaining the importance of this natural capital resource and what we can do to look after it. Dr Emily Taylor leads the Crichton Carbon Centre and oversees a large range of projects. Emily is a peatland specialist and has developed and is delivering the highly popular peatland action restoration events and training throughout Scotland. Welcome Emily and thank you for joining us on the Natural Capital Podcast. We've given a brief overview of your bio, but do you want to explain what you do in the Crichton Carbon Centre a bit further? Yeah, of course. So so the Crichton Carbon Centre is an independent, not-for-profit organisation based down here in the southwest of Scotland in the Fries and Galloway. Um, and we were founded back in 2007 really to help people understand climate change and to take action around climate change. So our kind of interest span from a sort of environmental education right through to supporting real life change on the ground. In the past sort of 10 years, we've really built a specialism in peatland restoration and sustainable land use. So we're, we're busy working across the Southwest at the moment on various peatland restoration projects. And as you said, I, I now help run the training events for peatland restoration across Scotland. So we're very keen to be the ones that sort of bridge the gap between the research, the science and kind of action practicalities on the ground. Great, that's a really good overview. And I think before we kick off is to maybe it's best to go back to basics and if you can provide us what is peatland, how much do we have it in Scotland and why is it so unique? Peatlands are really part of our Scottish makeup. It's what kind of makes Scotland in a lot of areas. Peatlands are, are soils, but they're very, very high in organic carbon. And they formed since the last ice age, so over thousands of years, slowly accumulating organic matter, which has been laid down as peat rather than fully decomposing, because these are very wet, waterlogged, acidic environments, so decomposition is, is much, much slower. Peatlands really cover vast areas of Scotland. You'll be very aware of the flow country, for example, up north, and of course, big areas of peatland out in, say, Lewis and up in Shetland as well. But you find peatland pretty much throughout Scotland. There's two types of peatland. So you have your lowland race bogs, as you'd imagine, found more in the, in the lowlands. And then you have blanket bogs. And these are the vast expanses often found in the uplands of these peaty soils, these deep peatland soils. In Scotland, we think there's probably about 20, 25% of Scotland is made up of these types of soils. So they're very much part of how we manage the ground. It underpins many of our activities from forestry to farming to shooting enterprises. It's kind of part of the systems in which we're we're working on. And when you said it underpins the land management of like forestry, how does it do that? So why is it important to other kind of catchment activities? 
Well, it's really interesting. So for for a long time, uh, we tried to improve our peaty soils. You know, they're nutrient-poor soils, they're low in productivity. So we've done many, many things to change these peatland soils to become more productive. And that's resulted in lots and lots of drainage. Um, I'm sure you're all aware of walking about on hills and, and coming across these, these drains cut in the peat. And also, you know, really cultivated for um, grasslands, but also forestry as well. So a lot of our forestry, there's areas now sitting on very deep peats because they've been very heavily drained and very heavily ploughed with lots of ground preparation used to try and convert these less productive areas into these more productive forestry stands. So if these areas are planted on peat, when we're talking about restoring peatlands, can you target these areas or is this now forestry and that's what the land cover is? Well, this is what's been revealing over the past sort of decade or so is actually just what you can do with peatlands. Peatlands want to be wet. And if you can get those conditions back, you can restore the hydrological function of these areas, you get peatland habitat once again coming in. And so we are doing programmes of forest to bog work. So the big kind of uh, known area will be up near Forstenard in the flow country, where trees are not productive they, they should never really have gone in on those deep peats and so now there's a huge program of work to restore these peatlands to their kind of ecological their hydrological function um so it really is quite remarkable what you can do with peatland restoration i think we're learning year on year what's possible and in defeats and gallery we have some examples as, as well as kind of restoration of lowland raised bogs which have been previously very heavily modified to support the growth of sitka spruce lodgepole pine so emily looking at a peatland, how would you know if it's healthy or how would you know if it's degraded? Are there different categories and what are the indicators of each? Yeah, so when we talk about peatland condition, we like to keep it simple and understandable. So we really think about maybe sort of five categories of condition. Your first category is near natural, and that's when you've got lots of sphagnum moss. The sphagnum moss you can pull out the ground, wring the water out of. Really important for keeping those areas kind of wet and acidic. So really help all the processes to remain in balance. So it's probably indicating a good, healthy peatland system. But then obviously you can have an artificially drained category. And these are areas where you can stand in them and you can look around and you see all these drains that have been dug. Usually these are open drains, often ploughed to sort of 50 centimetres depth and width, but can erode into all sorts of features as well. So obviously if you've got a drain system, you'll be having an impact on the water table and all your processes will be out of sync. Then you kind of have a modified category where you don't have that artificial drainage network. You've got some areas that might be functioning quite well, but the vegetation overall isn't quite right. So this might be down to, say, heavy stocking densities in the past, frequent muir burn regimes in the past as well, or it could be you've got conifers that are jumping on from a nearby forestry. So just the vegetation composition isn't quite right. So you might need to think more there about management rather than sort of capital intervention in terms of peatland restoration. And then you get the big difficult one, which is actively eroding. And really simple indicator for this is you have extensive or small patches of bare peat. 
And what happens is not only is that peat kind of exposed, will start to erode and wash away and blow away um, and really open to the elements, but it changes how water interacts with that peatland as well. So you can very quickly get sort of flow pathways opening up that turn into gullies. And I'm sure if you've been in the uplands, you'll have come across peat tags. That has an indication of, you know, quite significant peat loss in the past. So all those areas are very easy to see in the field. Uh, we've actually designed, um, you know, simple guidance on this, just using photographs to show the kind of features that we're looking at. But, you know, you don't need a kind of degree in ecology to understand peatland condition, really, and start to kind of understand the restoration opportunities. And of course, we discussed earlier that we have this other category, which is sort of afforested or kind of woodland areas. And I would say, you know, we're not anti-tree at all, but we, we are worried about trees that are on modified peatlands or drained peatlands. So, so trees that wouldn't be there naturally without kind of fundamental modifications to the hydrology in particular. So again, you know, all these areas we are looking at and we consider for restoration and we can do restoration in all these areas too. And what would be involved in restoration? So I think fundamentally restoration involves really two things. Primarily, it's about restoring the hydrological function of a peatland. And so that's slowing the flow of water off a peatland. It's it's stopping, you're blocking those drains, so stopping those artificial drainage points, making sure water interacts with peatlands as it should, kind of absorbs in, doesn't flow over the surface of, of bare peat. And of course, the water table is fundamental to peatlands. All the process, particularly when you look at the carbon cycling of a peatland, all processes are underpinned by the water table. And the water table is simply, you know, the height of the water in the peat body itself. And obviously, in kind of wet times, winter times, the water table is going to be quite close to the surface. But it fluctuates naturally, sort of drier seasons, you know, you'll get a, a reduction in the height of the water table. And so you get this fluctuation seasonally. If you've got a degraded system, a drain system, lots of erosion channels, then you're going to get a much bigger drawdown of that water table. Um, so we probably, you've probably heard the phrase re-wetting. I don't tend to use the phrase re-wetting. I like to you know, tend towards describing it as stopping drying. Because with restoration, what you're trying to do is stopping that huge drawdown in the water table. And probably these areas are wet in the winter anyway. We're just probably keeping them wetter for longer. Um, so it's not about creating huge pools of water on the surface. Um, it's about fundamentally the, the water in the peat body itself. So the water table is really key. So it's all about hydrological function. But often areas have been so severely eroded that what your primary concern is stabilisation of those areas. So you need to stop areas of bare peat eroding. You need to stabilise conditions so you can allow for vegetation to come back in, cover these areas over naturally and stop that kind of active erosion phase. Um, you're probably never going to restore the water table as it once was because you've lost a lot of peat so the topography is all strange you've got lots of drainage channels in these gullies and you've got hags everywhere but fundamentally you're trying to just stop that area getting any worse and secure that carbon secure that ground as well because you know open eroding peat is no good for anything get anything growing back over it that that's a really good thing you mentioned the lowland raised bogs i was going to ask where these can be found so is it dumfries and galloway is there anywhere else yeah, so we've got a lot of recent galleries. So think coastal estuarine type areas, so central belt, areas in Aberdeenshire as well. But th these are usually formed from kind of old glacial lakes that have slowly infilled 
um, over time. Because they're in the lowlands, they tend to be slightly more productive. So these are where you find your deepest peats. And in Scotland, I think, you know, their deepest peats probably around the 11 to 12 metre mark. So, you know, these are significant stores of carbon, even though, you know, relatively speaking to blanket bogs, they, they covered quite a small area. And would you say there's more restoration going on in the uplands or in the lowlands? That's interesting. The programme, Peatland Action, the Scottish Government's programme for peatland restoration, there's no kind of specific target for that in terms of the type of site that we're working on. I think looking back, probably we've seen a bit more work on lowland raised bogs because they've been better suited to agri-environment schemes in the past. We may have seen more sort of works around restoration of those areas than we have in the uplands. However, now I think we're seeing it everywhere. So we're seeing a lot more work happening in the uplands. But working in the uplands, as you may well imagine, is very tough and often quite different to, to how we approach restoration on a lowland raised bog. Funny that you say it's very tough. I watched a recent episode on FAS TV about peatland restoration in Shetland and the approaches that they're taking and the mats that they're putting down. It's quite novel approaches, what they've got, but it's yeah. quite slow work because it's it's quite hard to manoeuvre the machinery in there. Yeah, that's it. The, these sites are really challenging, and they're challenging to challenge in terms of how the prediction of what will happen with the restoration. They're challenging. We can't predict the weather. Um, often you get a machine on site and your lovely state requirements that you've drawn up over many months goes out the window because the site responds in a different manner than you expected. So, yeah, so every peatland restoration project is really bespoke to that site. And I suppose regionally there's different approaches as well that we're finding working better in different areas than others. Um, so it really is, you know, careful design. It's really careful understanding of that site first and foremost, and then coming up with a specific design for that area. If you'd like to watch this episode of Peatland Restoration in Shetland, you can find a link to it in the show notes. You mentioned Peatland Action. Can you just give us an overview of what Peatland Action is? Yeah, so Peatland Action is really Scottish Government's national programme of peatland restoration. It started back in 2013 and it really was a result of our growing understanding that peatlands were very, very important carbon stores in Scotland. And estimates suggest, you know, around 140 years of our annual emissions are contained in our peat soils. So, so even small areas of this peatland, a small proportion degrading each year, was going to have a big impact in terms of our sort of climate ambitions and our, our net zero targets. So peatland restoration kind of formed, if you like, on the job. We received funding through Nature Scott. So Nature Scott are the administrators of Peatland Action. And they were tasked with building a team that could help landowners, land managers engage and deliver peatland restoration. So they very quickly bought in lots of different external organisations, so the likes of the Crichton Carbon Centre here in the southwest, Tweed Forum over in the east, to Shetland Immunity Trust up on Shetland. So lots of different organisations come together and we are part of this wider peatland action team. And our role is really to deliver peatland restoration across Scotland. And what's been great about Peatland Action is they've funded project officers. So we've hosted a project officer now for probably nearly 10 years. And 
we're fully funded. So we are the person that can go out, speak to land manager, speak to the landowner, go out and survey the site, understand the site, start to work out the kind of restoration techniques that may be appropriate, have those discussions with the land manager, which is absolutely key. So we can co-design a restoration project. And then we're the ones that can help engage the contractors, machine operators, and get the whole thing up and running. So Peatland Action, they fund 100% of the capital works of Peatland Restoration, the actual cost of doing the restoration itself. There's no management payment as there is per kind of agri-environment schemes. But to date, we've probably, I don't know the official statistics, but probably over 30,000 hectares now have been restored through the Peatland Action programme. That's a lot of restoration. That's great. And an outcome of restoring peatland, is it the peatland code? I know that's similar for when you have restored your peatland, but I'm not familiar about what would need to be achieved for the peatland code. Can you give us some more information on that? Yeah, so the peatland code is really interesting. And again, that was designed off the back of the concept of the woodland carbon code. And we're all very familiar with the idea that you plant trees, you sequester carbon, that's good for the for climate change, good for our environment. But we felt strongly, we were part of the original team that sort of designed the metrics that sit behind the peatland code. And we felt strongly that actually with peatlands, it's all about keeping that carbon in the ground and we need to resource that somehow. And so if we could understand the carbon benefits of peatland restoration, then there's a mechanism there to sell your carbon units to bring in revenue to support the restoration of peatlands. So peatland action on one hand pays for the capital works of peatland restoration. And then the peatland code is a mechanism in which you can get longer term payments to help maintain sites that have been restored and validated through the peatland code process. So the peatland code is a, a very rigorous process to go through. You, you have to demonstrate that your project is sound, it's happening in the right area on deep peat soils, and the restoration is, is well planned. And that, that change brought about by restoration will ultimately be validated and that sort of carbon saving calculated as a result. So the two actually in practice are often working together. So you would blend the two. You'd have Peatland Action paying for capital works, um, at least some of the capital works. And then you'd have the Peatland Code money because you can sell your carbon units because they've been validated through the Peatland Code system to bring in and draw in longer terms of revenue to help maintain and support these sites. So once you've finished your restoration, how long would it be until you qualify to go into the Peatland Codes? When do you know that it's working? <laughs> <laughs> so, so you actually go through the Peatland Code process as you do the restoration. So they need to validate and understand and confirm the baseline condition from which you're starting, because that's obviously critical for, for measuring your carbon change brought about by restoration. And then really it's up to you when you sell your units. So in my experience, I'm working with land managers, estate owners, farmers, and they're considering, okay, well, let's see when it works. And that'll be the point that we'll maybe think about selling our carbon units. You can sell pending units, based on an assumption that you will be bringing about these changes, these carbon changes. But mostly people are taking a slightly more pragmatic view, sitting back, waiting for the restoration to really show that it's it's stable and resilient and things are working. And that point might be when they would release their carbon units. Moving on to think about the other ecosystem services of Peatland. I know carbon sequestration is just one benefit that we get from it. And on episode one of this podcast, we spoke to Dr. Hannah Rudman and she gave this nice overview about 
how restoring peatland benefits maybe fisheries in the bottom of the catchment on the coast and how peatland provides like the regulating service of water quality. Have you got any information on how that happens? How does it benefit water quality? Yeah, so that's really interesting and really quite a priority for us here in Dumfries and Galloway. That's driving a lot of the areas that we're seeing restoration in because we're linking it up to sort of water environments and the need to improve kind of water health. So so there are many ways. Um, if you imagine peatlands are, they're often described as a sponge, but, you know, they're not an infinite sponge. They won't just keep holding water over time, gaining more and more water. They will release water naturally. That's that's part of the process. But when you have areas that are degraded, so lots of exposed bare peat, or you have drained areas, then you're going to fundamentally change how quick that water flows off a peatland area. So you can often get much higher peaks. You get flashier kind of water environments, if you like, because you've got these more, more kind of extreme flow events and that can do two things it might have repercussions downstream um, in terms of flooding because you're not getting that slower release of water and remember there's a lot of our rivers where huge areas of their upper catchments are peatland because they're in the uplands so you have degraded peatlands or drain peatlands in these areas and you know you could be having quite a big impact cumulative impact kind of downstream but also just that erosive force of the water as well if you focused and hats off, by the way, to everybody that did the, the drainage in these areas because there's some really effective drainage systems that have been done. And absolutely, you know, I really do admire how people actually understood the hydrology. But those areas are focusing water to certain points. And because of that, you can often get quite a lot of erosion. So you can get peat substrate actually washed into watercourses that might disadvantage the kind of habitat quality of a watercourse, of a, of a stream, but you can also get acidic flushes as well. Um, and that's what we have in Dufresa Gallery. We have some of the most acidified stretches of watercourses I think I, I know about, you know, regularly sort of below pH 4, so very, very acidic. And these are areas where there's a lot of water that's rushing through degraded, dried out, oxidised peat, and all these organic acids are flushing through into these systems. And anything below sort of pH 5, from my understanding, working with um, the Gallery Fishes Trust, and particularly down here, can be critical to fish. So if that happens at certain life cycle stages, then it's going to have a direct impact on fish stocks. So there's all, all sorts of ways. And I think we're only really now starting to understand, you know, lots of the issues that we've had for many, many years. We're now thinking, actually, that's because... So say we have very, very drained areas of kind of poor forestry in these acid-sensitive catchments. And now we're understanding, actually, that's because they're sitting on six metres of peat as well. So you've got that added problem of kind of peat loss and kind of acidic flushes coming through as well. So I think there are many ways, and I think we'll understand more and more about how um, peatlands can be interacting with the water environment as we keep going with our peatland restoration. Yeah, so it really does have catchment-wide benefits for restoration. It's good that you mentioned the drainage that had been put in years ago because this was like the typical norm thing to do was to drain the land. And it's we've taken such like a culture shift. Even just up in the Highlands, people burn peat for their fuel. Mm -hmm. And how do you think that's going to cope with people using it as one resource and on the other hand people want to restore it is there going to be some kind of happy medium or trade-offs being made yeah i think the first thing is it's really important that you know there's not the kind of blame game 
in this. You know, we're not out there to point the finger and say that, you know, you've really messed up your peatlands, you've done too much drainage or whatever. It is what it is. And, and you know, we funded it. The government funded it in an attempt to make these areas more productive. But we were looking at these areas from a very fixed point of view of productivity. We now understand these areas have functions and importance for climate, for biodiversity, for landscape, for water habitats, for everything else. Yes, I I think that message, though, is kind of getting stronger and stronger. And people are understanding that this is a really important ecosystem here that we have in Scotland and we need to be looking after it. So it's interesting, you know, I, I do a lot of work with farmers and estate managers and I've been to many areas where, you know, they say to me, oh gosh, you know, the day they drained the hill, we knew it was a mistake because the drainage wasn't done particularly well and we've just created these horrible drains and now stock fall into them and they're a hazard actually. So there's kind of an understanding in some areas, you know, this is not been a good thing but now we have options we now know that we can go back and we can look at these areas and restore that kind of ecological function once again so that they're not quite as, as dangerous but I also think it's it's a kind of wider understanding that you can still have activities on peatlands even if you've done restoration it's not a case of oh do your peatland restoration over there fence it off and then that's now a restored site it's actually peatland restoration can have many, many benefits to how land is managed. So I think it's these kind of communications, the demonstration of restoration as well, that, you know, you can go in and you can restore old abandoned peat banks that have been cut in the past, that aren't cut anymore. Well, there's simple things that we could do to go and restore those peatland areas. And it's not too terrifying. It's not creating huge lagoons of water everywhere. Um, so it's all about understanding and actually seeing it in practice, I think, helps a lot in, in kind of the messaging of what peatland restoration is and, and how it is beneficial. That kind of goes back to your point that it's all kind of bespoke the different projects so it can be done in different scales from the lower end to the yeah. total, the machinery end, creating the, the bog pools and things. And what about activities such as like new wind farms that might be developed? Obviously, these want to be placed on hills that are with peat. Can these two coexist? Yeah, so it, it's very difficult, I think, because we often want to develop these areas that are far away, you know, out of sight, kind of um, in the uplands where it's windy, open hills, and inevitably they will be peaty. Um, so obviously wind farms have to consider peatlands in their design, and they have to account for any sort of changes of bringing about to that peatlands, and they have to have a sort of peatland restoration plan I think what we would like to see is, is much more emphasis on at the de design stage around how that wind farm is designed so it's really limiting the impact it has on a peatland area. Um, so we're not boring big holes into peat. We're not got, have a huge sort of issue of piles of peat lying everywhere we have to do something with. We've actually considered that peat use right from the outset. But what I would also say is, you know, through wind farm developments, we've also seen, you know, pioneering peatland restoration techniques because they have been required to undertake peatland restoration. So we've seen various techniques developing through developments as well. And what's really good about peatland action, the approach we have in Scotland, is we brought everyone together and we're sharing all our knowledge on how to do restoration. So we're learning from wind farm companies. They're learning from us. So we're hopefully raising the standard of peatland restoration as a whole across all these areas. What about things that are out with the farmer's control or you can't completely control 
like maybe deer management and the poaching that comes with it with high deer numbers in peatland restoration projects? Are they quite sensitive, the success of them quite sensitive to trampling and by deer? It, it can be. And again, this is about understanding how a site is being used, how that ground is being used, what's on that ground, you know, patterns of deer movement, as well as the kind of general sort of density of stock. So it's about understanding all these things. And yes, some restoration is vulnerable to trampling and kind of deer hanging out or walking through an area or very high kind of sheep uh, grazing levels as well. So, yes, that's always part of, of something we have to consider, particularly through peatland action. They need to know about stocking densities um, and the number of deer on an area as well, because we've had examples in the past of very high deer numbers, big herds running through an area of bare peat restoration, and it's just been trashed. So we don't want to be spending a lot of money doing this for it not to be resilient to that kind of pressure. So peatland action are actively engaged with many deer management groups, we're always trying to understand how deer and sheep are using our sites as well. Because often as well, the areas we want to restore from a kind of ecological point of view are the kind of rough, want-to-be-wet bits anyway that are probably not utilised by stock. So, you know, a general grazing density is fine, but actually understanding, you know, where that grazing pressure is, it might not actually be on these wetter areas that they're kind of tending to avoid anyway. So that shows how... We have to understand the kind of land management of an area. We have to understand potential pressures. Um, and often we find that we're doing peatland restoration in areas that have been part of kind of moorland management plans for many years. So their stocking densities are already low and sustainable. And it's quite viable to keep grazing at those levels and do peatland restoration at the same time. I just wanted to go back to basics just a little bit more and ask... In terms of restoration, how long does it take for peatland to maybe grow one millimetre? <laughs> a long, long time. Uh, so, you know, our peatlands have been growing over thousands of years. So it's, you know, rule of thumb, a millimetre a year. You know, so it's very, very slow to accumulate. And that, that's a really important point because often peatlands are compared to, to forest and woodland creation from a carbon point of view. But woodland and forestry creation is all about new carbon sequestering from the atmosphere. With peatlands, it's all about this huge carbon resource in the ground. And although it accumulates very, very slowly, you can lose it rapidly. So I'm sure uh, you'll probably see the Shetland uh, or listen to the Shetland uh, podcast, and they'll talk about sort of peat loss. And they lose inches off their surface of bare peat every winter. So you can very rapidly lose peatland and it's, you know, put that against very slow accumulation rate. It doesn't take much to lose a significant amount of our peatland in our carbon store. And what type of species grow on top of peatland? What would be like the good indicator species to notice that that's good peat underneath? So a system that's in kind of good near natural condition, you're going to see loads of sphagnum moss. And sphagnum moss is that moss that you can pull out the ground and you can wring water out of. And, and sphagnum moss is really key because not only does it keep the area wet, which is really critical for a lot of the function of that peatland and the overall kind of peat accumulation, but it keeps the area acidic as well, which again is really important for that function. So lots of sphagnum moss is really a good indicator that things are kind of in the right sort of direction and the processes are all sort of in balance. And you've said Scotland's covered between 20 and 25% of peatland. So what advice can you give to farmers and landowners what they should be doing with their peatland? I think 
really the advice would be is just to kind of have a think where your your peatland is you know we're not going out creating new bogs what we're doing is we're looking at your existing peatlands and seeing where there's a need to improve things so a really good starting point is to go out and understand have you got any areas that are eroding and i think it's an absolute win-win for everybody to restore those eroding areas you know, it's a priority for carbon. You get huge carbon loss from these areas. Priority for grazing. You know, you've got no vegetation in these areas. Increasingly, we're understanding, you know, these areas are very dry now in the summer and spring. So it could be really important from a bird point of view. So in grouse moors, we're now understanding that actually doing a bit of ditch blocking, managing water, keeping water on the hill is a really good thing. So, yeah, if you've got erosion, then to me, that would make a lot of sense to, to kind of focus your efforts on an area like that but also areas of drainage it's really good to understand is that drainage working is that drainage infilling is that drainage causing your problem you know is it difficult to get a quad bike over that ground that's so heavily drained are you losing stock in in there you're losing lambs in these drains you know these can be quite dangerous features so I, i would think about how are peatlands performing for you are there areas of peatland that could be tweet to become in better condition that you don't really utilize anyway so it's kind of understanding i think you know where your peatland is a really simple thing you do take your stick out with you put it in the ground more than 50 centimeters of peat you've got deep peat you know probably restorable peat you know there's things funding available to do work in that kind of area so understand what's beneath beneath your feet and how you utilize those areas i think is the best starting point and there's lots of obvious environmental benefits for looking after the peatlands. Is there potential financial benefits for both now and in the future? Yeah, I think, well, this is literally the kind of million dollar question, isn't it, really? Um, yeah, I, I think it's very interesting to see the level of commitment from the Scottish Government for peatlands. So suddenly this kind of what's been termed a Cinderella habitat that's not been kind of loved or thought about for many, many years suddenly has come into its own because we're now understanding the carbon dynamics. And increasingly, we'll probably start to see biodiversity metrics being developed so we can assess the biodiversity changes that we're bringing about on these areas as well. And I think all of that will unlock um, ways of funding this work because there's more and more people looking to invest in carbon and biodiversity in light of you know of our climate and our biodiversity crisis as well and our net zero targets which are very ambitious so it's kind of peatlands will become part of the solution and i think peatlands will become kind of more embedded into how we we manage the ground as well um so yeah i think yeah the future is kind of very bright uh, for peatlands but i think fundamentally though you still need people on the ground that can design really good designs with landowner input, land manager input as well. So you come up with solutions that's really going to benefit everybody. What is really exciting and interesting to you at the moment and for the future of peatlands? I think what's really exciting for me is that, you know, 10 years ago, I would go and chat to people and say, oh, you know, have you thought about doing peatland restoration? And I'd go, what? You know, what, what, you, what do you mean? We know we've done the drainage. No, 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 no. We are now talking about, you know, restoring, you, you know, you want to block drain. And it was such a kind of U-turn for all the years we've talked about trying to change these systems to make them more productive. To suddenly have a kind of now, 10 years on, more inquiries than we can deal with. You know, people absolutely understand that peatland restoration is something they should certainly know about, if not start engaging with now while well, they've got the kind of peatland action team to support them to do that. And I think what's really exciting for me is 
we're now working with land owners and managers and they're not just doing the kind of restoration conservation project over there on that bit of ground that they don't really use anyway. They're actually embedding it across how they manage the ground. So it's becoming part of forestry, it's becoming part of estate management, it's becoming part of you know farm management as well. Increasingly, I think once we get that wide understanding and it's embedded in, it's seen as an asset and something that they should be supporting and looking at kind of managing in a way that's going to improve its resilience as well, of course, in light of climate change. I think to me, that's really exciting. And I think the most exciting for me is I, I've been doing these training events for many, many years and you know, I'd stand up and try and see people dress. It's a really good thing. You know, we should do it and loads of questions and things, you know, points to be raised. And I went to an event recently and I said, so any questions? No, because they're all doing it anyway. You know, they kind of don't need me anymore. And to me, I think that's the most exciting thing. Yeah, that really is a good, a good message. And hopefully we can help you spread it even further with um, this podcast episode. I just want to thank you again for coming on today. Great, thank you very much for for your time. And thank you for joining us on this Natural Capital episode. If you've enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow our podcast wherever you listen to them. Leave us a review to let us know how we're doing and get in touch if you want to find out more. You may also enjoy some of our other shows such as Rural Roundup, Crofting Matters or Thrill of the Hill, where they also cover a range of topics relevant to the upland and peatland environments. There's a whole range of other podcasts and resources available on the Fast Sounds page and Farming Advisory Service website. Join us again for episode four, where we will be focusing on natural resources that Scotland is well known for, our water environment. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.